back to Revive School. It's Acts chapter 7, lesson number 7, and we are going to look at the testimony of a man who has nothing to lose. I'm Pastor Tom Schieffer. It's great to be back with you today as we look at Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7. This is the final day of Stephen's life. Uh, a lot of times we focus on his death. We, we focus on the stoning and that's very famous, but he gives a testimony, he gives a response ahead of that that reveals a man whose heart beat for Jesus Christ to the very end. And his name even means uh, a crown or a garland, that, that element, uh, the same Greek word that was used for the crown of glory to the victor in the Olympic Games. I find that absolutely fascinating. This man who has been described as full of the Holy Spirit, maybe not very old, but a perfect name for one crowned with the first martyr's crown for Jesus Christ. I'm in awe of this guy. I only pray that we are as capable and that we stand as true in the midst and in the face of great, great trial. It really begins... Kevin, let's back into chapter 6 just a minute to get the, the, the pacing through. And students, always remember, the chapters and verses that we have are there to help us. They were put in there by publishers decades, centuries ago, as they published the Bible to help us find chapters and verses. But sometimes they still have some very awkward changes. And so we've got this handoff from chapter 6 to chapter 7, where uh, verse 14 of chapter 6, we have heard him say, these are the false accusers, and they, they take the truth and they twist it. This is a technique of Satan. He loves to take a truth, 85, 90% truth, and twist it. And so these false accusers say, we have heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. We're going to see where Stephen doesn't fully rebuke that, but rebukes the, the, the implication there. And then in verse 15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, so we're back in amongst the Sanhedrin, and they looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here we've got the Sanhedrin again, and they can see his face. Seventy people, and they can all see his face. And it reflected that presence of God. And you can almost feel them leaning in into this incredibly tense moment. And we get to chapter 7 and a simple question. Is this true? The high priest asked. I want you to see something as we go through this response, this testimony. And a lot of times we refer to it uh, and this, this testimony, and I've even looked at it as an overview of Jewish history. It's more than that. It's a testimony to, to show how they have taken what God has given and turned them into idols. And he, just to give you that overview, and again, our word for Acts is authority, 
and how they have taken the authority and the blessing of God. And Stephen takes on the authority of the Holy Spirit and says, you have taken the blessing of God and turned it into an idol. And he focuses it on three great pillars of Jewish piety. First, he's going to talk about the land. That's going to be in verses 2 to 36, a big chunk of his testimony. He's going to focus on the land. And then he's going to focus on the law and how they've turned that into an idol. That's going to be in verses 37 to 43. And then the big one, the temple. Verses 44 to 53, and how they've turned that into an idol. Stephen's going to reply to this question, not to defend himself, but to defend pure faith in Jesus Christ as God's appointed way to worship. It's not about himself. It's about Jesus. So he starts out by saying, Folks, you're wrong about the land. Now, God gave special privileges to those living on the promised land. That's all the way through. But Stephen wants to say, you need to understand, God met and took care of his people outside the Holy Land as well. And to prove that point, he begins with Abraham, verses 2 through 8. Brothers and fathers. Isn't that fun? Brothers and fathers. He gives them the respect, even though he probably doesn't respect them as much as they think. But he says, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And he goes on and he said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives, and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land you now live in. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. We saw that in the Pentateuch, didn't we? But he promised to give it to him as a possession, and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, and again he quotes, His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country. They would enslave and oppress them 400 years. I will judge the nation, and they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Then God gave him the covenant of circumcision. After that, He fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs. Here is God revealing himself to Abraham long before he is in the promised land. God blessed Abraham even though he did not yet occupy a foot of land in the Holy Land as we know it. The element of the land is not the blessing. It's the blessing of God on the land. And just to make sure that we understand that, and that the Sanhedrin, the learned ones, the ones who know the Pentateuch, that's one thing that's really fascinating with this. Every single one of them, there is going to be tension, and especially and there's been tension over the resurrection between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul is going to 
drive that as a wedge between them just to show how how far apart they the two parties really are but at this point Stephen is talking with and 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 highlighting and quoting truth that all of them hold to and then he says look this authority this relationship even carries on into the 12 sons of Jacob that's verses 9 to 16 the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, oh, did they ever, and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles, and he gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. Remember, this is all happening in Egypt. King of Egypt, who appointed him governor over Egypt and over his whole household, and he carries on, and then a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Cana, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. And the second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hanor, Hamor in Shechem. Look at this. Look at this. God blessed them through Joseph in Egypt, even while the only part of the Holy Land that they possessed was a family tomb. That was all. And yet God blessed and just to make sure that you don't miss this, again, so he's gone with Abraham and now the patriarchs and all the time in Egypt, and then he points to Moses. Remember, this is all about the land, and here comes Moses. And that's verses 17 to 36. Wow. At the time, was, as the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back at the beginning, and here it comes, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he, cared for, he was cared for in his father's home three months and then was left outside. There it is. Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Then Stephen is going to carry on. I invite you to, to read through these next several verses. I, I don't want to take the time here today, but to notice that he is going to quote from Exodus. He's going to quote from Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. He's going to quote from Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 and 15. And he is going to highlight and build the case based over Moses and how Moses had struggles. But Moses was going to bring the people back to the land. And we get down to verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, remove the sandals from your feet. This is on Mount Sinai. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. He's quoting from Exodus here again, again in chapter 3. 
and several verses there. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you as a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Raised in Egypt, matured in Midian, commissioned at Sinai. And notice that even in the Pentateuch, God calls Sinai holy ground. Holy ground is wherever God meets his people. Moses, the great Moses, is outside the borders. He never gets in. The promise and the aspect of the land isn't tied to Moses. Moses led them to the promised land, but God was with him every other place. Stephen's pointing this out to them. You're missing the point about the land. The land is a blessing from God. The land is not the blessing of God. God is with you wherever he meets his people. And it points to Jesus. Then he says, you're wrong about the law. Here we get into verses 37 to 43. Sticks up again with Moses. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. I love that line. Isn't that a great line? Living oracles. This isn't dead words. This is living words. But our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Again, quoting from Exodus chapter 32. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idols, and were celebrating what their hands had made. Then God turned away and gave them up to the worship of to worship the host of gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices forty years in the desert? No. You took up the tent of Moloch. This is the one, this was the Canaanite god, the Phoenician god, the sun or sky god. They, they offered their children's burnt offerings to him. And the star of your god, Rephem. This is potentially an Assyrian star god. And the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. Now, Stephen has really condensed a great deal here. He has gone from the Pentateuch and by using Amos, took it all the way through the historical books that we've just gone through in Revive School. And he points that their idolatry, even though they had the law of Moses, you had the law, you had the word from God, and you couldn't keep it. The law of Moses couldn't save you. Because beyond Moses, there was somebody 
for them to look to another prophet. The hope of redemption was not in Moses' law, but in Jesus. And it points to Jesus, because the law cannot save you. And that's been proven. Jesus is the authority that Stephen keeps going back to. Stephen is carrying this authority as he speaks, but it's always pointing back to the authority of Jesus Christ, and he shows it even from the law. And then they're kind of getting a little bit awkward here. You can kind of hear the rumblings begin. And then he says, you're wrong about the temple. God most high is not accommodated in material shrines. Listen to what he says about God's real tabernacle. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. And he's going to clinch his case with Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, wait here just a second. Keep in mind, and you can see down here in our diagram, here at the, at the base, this chamber of hewn stone where the council meetings were held, where this was at, is right beside the temple. And he is saying to them, you do not understand. This promise in Christ for a new house to be truly fulfilled. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Listen again and make the connection here for us. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Here it comes, the whole building being built together, by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Here it is. He says, it's not the temple. This is not where it's at. The curtain has already been torn in two. There has been a radical shift and they're not even paying attention to it. God's presence has been opened up because of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Stephen is saying, it's not here, Jesus has changed everything. You've made, you've made an idol out of the land. You've made an idol out of the law. You've made an idol out of this temple. And so they don't miss this. He drives it home in verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels 
and have not kept it. He looks them in the eye. And he could do that. Nobody is more than three rows from him. And I can... I can visualize this in my mind. This man with the face of the angel. This, this guy full of the Holy Spirit. This one who has nothing to lose. He turns around and he looks them in the eye. And he says, you think because you are in, you think you're in, in total relationship with God because you possess the land, the law, and the temple. But you are wrong. You are dead wrong. You have missed the Holy Spirit. Your fathers had resisted the plan of God all along, and now their descendants had repudiated the one in whom the divine plan and purpose has been consummated in Jesus Christ. He says, you're the ones. Do you see? You have missed everything that's gone on around you. And take a look at what's been happening in your midst. And they miss it. What does that have to do with us today? I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, and I'm convinced in my own heart, because I've done this. I've made an idol out of the land. I can imagine that because I live in this incredible nation that we get the opportunity to live in, that I'm safe. I'm going to inherit God's blessing because God has blessed us. We've made an idol out of the law. We carry around God's word. We have it in such great ways and we carry it around, but we don't live it out. You know, back in chapter 4, that whole element of they had been with Jesus and it was so evident they had been with Jesus because everything about them screamed out, Jesus, here is Stephen, this man who's been untrained, and he's living it out. But because I can carry around a Bible, because I go to church, because I do all the religious activities, I've made an idol out of the law. I've done that in my own life, and I rebuke that. I say, I am done. And that's the calling for each and every one of us. This this testimony from Stephen, we need to take to heart. We need to read it and understand it in our own lives and let alone temple. We suppose because we go to a place, a building where God meets with his people, that we're going to receive special blessings. And so many times we focus on building so much that our focus on the Lord suffers. Yeah, Stephen's word was for the Sanhedrin. It was for the Sadducees, especially. But it's for each and every one of us because we run into this danger because Satan loves to work with 85% truth and twist it. Take a look what happened next. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their heart and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory. And look at this. With Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Don't miss this. He sees God's glory. This is like almost like Isaiah, uh, yeah, Isaiah chapter 6, you know, looking and seeing the throne filled with his glory. And notice, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In almost every other instance in Scripture, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But with Stephen, this incredible man of God, 
there's this image that God is rising from the throne to greet him. An acknowledgement of him who has acknowledged Christ before all powerful men. And he sees this and he says, oh, look at this. Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's an incredible sight. It's like everything just goes away. And here in the midst of the temple courts, he gets to see God in the real temple courts. It's beautiful beyond imagination. But there's something that happens. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. And they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It erupted beyond anything that we have ever seen in any of our political uh, situations, even today. The whole place erupted. They're screaming, no, no, I don't want to hear this. This is blasphemy. And they run him and they take him out because they have to stone him outside the city. And they run him out and they grab stones. And they were big stones. And stoning wasn't easy. It was not easy. And they took it and they threw it at him. And they kept throwing it at him. And they took their coats off because it was sweaty hard work. And they kept going. And it was a long, hot business. And look at the testimony. The testimony is Stephen was there. And as they're stoning him in verse 59, he cried out, Lord Jesus. Stones hitting him. Receive my spirit with the face like an angel. He was welcomed by the angel. And he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice. He was so in love with Jesus that he even modeled Jesus at this moment. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. There's lessons to learn here. Our Lord doesn't offer us safety, brothers and sisters. I'm still learning that. But he does offer us strength. Our task, our calling is obedience to Christ. We think we want safety in this life. It's safety in the life to come. And through him, we can have strength when we have nothing whatsoever to lose. And our, faith, our Lord is faithful to us in all that he's promised us. Our task is to remain faithful to him. As you read, as you study, as you reflect, as you own this testimony of Stephen, ask yourself, how does the example of Stephen challenge me to be prepared to be a witness for Jesus Christ? And notice, notice, Dr. Luke has made sure in his tags that the mission of Jesus Christ is going to carry on. And he introduces us to Saul, 
who will become Paul, who heard this testimony, denied it at that time. But there is a Damascus Road experience coming. Be ready for yours. Be faithful like Stephen. Press on and walk out the authority and the boldness that we have in Jesus Christ. God bless you, brothers.